I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 119 for our Old Testament scripture reading. We'll read this morning verses 25 to 32, and notice the end of the psalmist's prayer here in this section as he asks for the Lord to open and enlarge, to widen his heart and his love for his Savior. Psalm chapter 119, beginning in verse 25 through verse 32. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts. And I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away from sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me. And graciously teach me your law. I've chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Now turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 for our New Testament Scripture reading. It's a short passage that we'll give attention to this morning, but one that I think merits a certain pause as we reflect and consider how to apply this to our own particular lives and circumstances. We'll read uh, verses 11 to 13 and then jump down to chapter 7 and read verses 2 and 3 as well. The reason is, and if I could just step back for a moment, if you think of 2 Corinthians as ascending a high mountain, this center section of the whole letter is chapter 6, verses 14 to 18, and afterwards you start the descent back down. So on both sides of that middle section, you'll see similarities in what Paul is contending for, and so it's worthwhile reading these a uh, few passages, few verses together. So, Second uh, Corinthians chapter six, uh, verse eleven. Paul says this under inspiration of the Spirit that we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. Now jumping down to chapter 7, verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I don't say this to condemn you. For I said this before, that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. This is God's Word. Let us pray and ask that the Spirit would bless the reading and especially the preaching of it. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank You for Your inerrant Word. We ask that Your Spirit would illuminate our hearts to see, even to recognize our own deficiencies, that we might call out to You that You would answer us and heal us and teach us the path of righteousness. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, who's, who stole Christmas? 
It's a question I think everybody asks uh, around every December when you get to see all the, the great Christmas cartoons that come out on the television. Uh, uh, one of the perennial uh, uh, children's story favorites, the story by Dr. Seuss that addresses that very question. Who is it that stole Christmas? We all know it. It's that mean one, Mr. Grinch, the one who has the heart that is shrunken, two size smaller than everybody else, the, uh, the heart that is, looks like a, like a dried walnut, a man or a beast who has really no capacity for love. And yet throughout the story, the idea, what we see is because of the love of others, his heart begins to widen. It begins to enlarge and to be readjusted so that he might love properly. It's a great story in many ways, and it's a similar situation that we find ourselves in this particular uh, case here in 2 Corinthians. This is certainly Corinth's problem as it relates to Paul. This is uh, certainly, as as we've seen over the past uh, several months, uh, the case of a relationship gone south. Here's a church that at least initially, as you read Acts chapter 18, when when Paul first planted this church, this is a church that really gushed over Paul. Think of all the love uh, that, that flowed forth and, and, and all the, 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 the kind of the dump truck of, of spiritual gifts uh, that the Lord had blessed that particular congregation with. And yet, despite all the gifts, it led to all this boasting and all this infighting. And it, it's almost as if somebody has turned the spigot off in the church's love and affection towards their pastor. Numerous slanderous reports have appeared. These deep-seated suspicions and a deep mistrust of Pastor Paul have shriveled up their affections. Corinth has shut herself down. She perhaps has not, you know, many within that congregation have not left the congregation, but their hearts have grown cold and indifferent to what Paul has said. They, they kind of look at a Paul with the stink eye, trying to figure out what it is that he's actually up to, thinking that behind every phrase and every statement there lurks some type of agenda that he has, that he is out to hurt and harm the congregation. So Paul actually has to confront this very difficult situation. Paul here addresses Corinth's stifled affections. And he tries to spur them along that path of reconciliation as he has declared himself in chapter 5 to be a minister of reconciliation. So now he says, please, open, open your hearts back up to us. Turn the spigot back on. Here we're going to simply reflect on two aspects uh, of Paul's Uh, letter this morning and then try to apply it to our own present situation, even in the life of this congregation. First, we'll consider uh, Corinth's issue of having restricted affections. You'll see that in verses 11 and 12. The shriveled heart. uh, It's like a gnarled piece of beef jerky. And then secondly, we'll consider in verse 13, enlarged hearts. So restricted affections and enlarged hearts. And then of course, trying to make sense of how we can apply it to our own lives today. I think it's rather fascinating. Uh, I've lived in various regions of the U.S. over the past decade or so, and it's really interesting to see how different people address confrontation and conflict. For instance, you know, I lived in kind of the upper mid-Atlantic states up close to New England when I was in Philadelphia in seminary for a few years. And, and the good thing, uh, and in some ways the bad thing about living in Philadelphia is you never have to worry about what people are thinking. 
um, precisely because they'll tell you exactly what they are thinking, even if you've never met them before. I always felt like Philadelphia's uh, slogan should be, you know, something like, why stab you in the back when the face works just as well? It's something that's much more different than living uh, in, in parts of the Deep South. For any of you who've ever been to the Deep South, I love the Deep South, um, but how is it that people handle um, people's shenanigans? What is, it, what is a phrase that you hear more often than not? Oh, bless his heart. What does that mean? What an idiot. Shows that there's a certain disconnect between some of the things that we say and what it is that's actually coming out of our hearts. When we approach somebody and, and we say that thing that sounds so nice, but deep down, uh, we, we actually intend something different, even if they do not recognize what it is that is boiling over in our hearts. Well, throughout this letter, Paul's been forced to defend his character. A rather awkward situation for a man whose sole focus is to point others to Christ. He now has to, to point to himself and say, look, my ministry is one of integrity, despite the fact uh, that people have been lying about me. Regardless of all the slander and the mistrust, consider the wide range of accusations that Paul has had to deal in this fledgling congregation Earlier in this letter, people accusing Paul of being indecisive. Here's a man who changes his travel plans on a whim. You remember that in chapters 2 and 3. He can't make up his mind. He says he's going to show up, then he doesn't come. What's, what's the matter with him? He's a terrible leader. Doesn't know what he's doing. And yet the accusations get even more insidious. Later on, we'll see charges of manipulation that, that, that Paul is out to, as it were, gaslight Corinth, to use heavy-handed language to make them feel guilty so he can perhaps line their pockets so he can make an extra buck for himself. Paul's having to address this whole spectrum of accusations, and, and to be honest, a, a variety of accusations that taken together don't even add up. People just simply seem to believe whatever it is that they hear going on in kind of the congregational gossip circuit regardless of the fact that it does not comport with reality. The distress and slander has gotten so bad that it has forced Paul to defend his integrity. And so he has had to write now this letter to set the record straight. That he has conducted himself in simplicity and in sincerity. In other words, when he says that his ministry has been marked by sincerity, what he means is this, that Paul is not a bless-your-heart kind of guy. He's not here to tell you one thing, but means something totally different. He's not here saying something to your face and then talking bad about you behind your back. In other words, for Paul, for his ministry, what you see is what you get. He's not trying to deceive. He's not trying to manipulate anyone. It's why, how chapter 4 began, right? We do not deal with God's Word in manipulative or underhanded ways, but by an open demonstration of the truth, we make plain to you the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only is Paul's ministry marked by simplicity, it's also, or by sincerity, it's also marked by simplicity. In other words, Paul's focus is single-minded. Paul is not a guy who's distracted as we saw here in the, the, the first 10 verses here of chapter 6, Paul has described his own disposition towards this church. Many sleepless nights, the ceaseless labor, 
the hunger, the shipwrecks, the beatings, the imprisonments, everything that he suffered for the sake of this particular congregation. In other words, for Paul, there is no disconnect between the heart and the mouth. He's not a guy who's speaking with a forked tongue. He is telling you exactly how he feels, and what he feels for this congregation is nothing but love, despite the many frustrations that attend this high-maintenance congregation that is Corinth. And so he says here in verse 11, we have spoken freely. In other words, we, we've, we're, not, we're not giving you the silent treatment. We've, we've withheld nothing from you. It's not merely a matter of open mouths. It's a matter of open hearts. There's no secrets here. There's no underhanded motives. Paul is a man who has presented himself to a congregation as one utterly vulnerable one who continues to put his neck out on the line for this people. It's as if Paul was saying, I've pastored you, I've prayed for you, and I have loved you at great cost. Think of the litany of descriptors he has already given in this letter. I have abandoned that golden mission opportunity in Troas for you. I've changed my travel plans to accommodate you. I've held multiple painful conversations and confrontations for you, for your safety and for your health, for your well-being and your protection. I've been falsely accused by you, and yet I have not abandoned you. I've put up with insinuations and allegations. Despite my service to you, everything I do is for you. My mind, my will, my affections, that's what is meant by the heart, by the way, in Scripture. It's not just that, that, the feeling, but it's, it's, it's everything that we choose, everything that we think, everything that we will, the whole being. Paul says it has all been towards you, and despite the many uh, conflicts and confrontations and obstacles, nothing has stifled my love for you in the process. Rather, my heart has been enlarged so as to welcome you in, to see you grow in this grace in Christ. And yet, what's the response? Yet you have shut yourself off. Verse 12, he's essentially saying your heart looks like a shriveled walnut. You've become a congregation of Grinches. You've shut yourself off to me, and with it, you've shut yourself off to the message of the gospel. You've traded it for lesser things. You exchange suffering with Christ for a gospel that, the put, that puts the spotlight back on your own self-inflated egos. Remember, Corinth's big issue is the problem of boasting, the very thing you see in 1 Corinthians. You exchange suffering with Christ for a gospel that allows you to continue to boast in your own accomplishments rather than in the cross of Christ. You have exchanged suffering with Christ and the message of the cross for a gospel, which is no gospel, a message that finds its center in outward appearances. Those things, as Paul calls, according to the flesh. Those criterion of earthly fame and pleasure. Rather than judging the work of the Spirit by what the Spirit does in the heart of the people. The great promise of the new covenant. The gospel that rejects the message of the cross and the work of the Spirit in the heart of the believer is no gospel at all. What Paul says is we've done nothing to stifle your affections. We have done nothing to restrict your love for us, and yet we come to you open-hearted. And what do we find? 
This is tough love. This is Paul saying, it's not me, it's you. This is your doing, Corinth. And if you do not amend your ways, it might be too late. If you look down, chapter 7, verse 2, Paul continues and says, in effect, that you, you shut off yourselves to our ministry. He gives the reasons why. Due to false assumptions and baseless accusations. People spreading rumors about Pastor Paul have caused folks to think maybe the pastor is not as genuine as he, as he says he is. And so now, Paul exhorts the church of Corinth to alter their course. You see that here in verse 13 chapter 6. That's the main point in this broader passage. We have widened our hearts. Now we are asking you to return the favor. Open your hearts back up to us. That's what we're asking. Show us love. In essence, Paul's saying, why are you treating us like this? We've done nothing to harm you. Even the tear-stained letter that he had written earlier was a letter written from a heart of love, trying to mend a relationship that has fallen on the rocks due to the lies and slanders and whispers of others. Reminds us of Paul's letter to the church of Galatia where he had to encounter very similar things. He says, am I your enemy because I tell you the truth? I'm not saying these things to hurt you. But like a doctor who has to to tell the patient that they're suffering from stage 4 cancer, he's giving them difficult truths so that they might find hope and healing. That is not hatred. That is a love that knows no bounds and a love that gives despite the cost. And Paul is saying, we've opened up our hearts to you, and now I'm asking you to do the same. Open your hearts back to us. Stop your ears to those whispering lies, those lies that keep trying you to turn your affections from us towards other people. Here we get a a glimpse of Paul's paternal concern. He says, I speak to you as children. For those of you who are parents, what is the conversation that every parent seems to have with at least one of their teenagers? I have put a roof over your head. I have put food on the table, and how do you treat me? So thankless. I remember when I was, uh, I was in college, I was, uh, I, was, I was walking through the mall, because that's what you do if you don't want to be outside, because you stand outside in Florida in the summer, you'll spontaneously combust. So I'm walking around this air-conditioned mall, and, and I see that this, this uh, teenager with a skateboard dressed in, in all black, which is fine, and I, I guess. It doesn't make sense when you're in Florida, but hey, you know, to each his own. And he's wearing this T-shirt that says, in very explicit language, what he thinks of the man, what he thinks of authority, and what should be done to that authority. But what I thought was really interesting and somewhat ironic, as later on, as I was walking out to my car, I saw this, this teenager with their skateboard sitting on the park bench, and who was it that pulled up to pick up him? His mom. Here is somebody who is defying authority and yet is reliant upon that same authority to pick them up from the mall. And isn't that a picture of us? Isn't this a picture of Corinth? Despising authority and yet so in need of what Paul has to give. They're so thankless. They're so loveless. Again, it is... um, one Christian author says it's like a, like a child sitting on his parent's lap, slapping the parent in the face. 
The child has to sit in the parent's lap in order to do it. It's resting in his parent, and yet it is harming the parent. And this is Paul talking to his children, as it were. It's like, don't you see how you're behaving? Open your hearts back up to us. We've, we've not harmed you. Why are you so distrustful of church authority? We've done nothing to, to, to warrant this. Why are you acting this way? Again, this to reiterate, Paul's not on some sort of ego trip. This is not a matter of personality uh, clashes. What we have is those who are were repudiating Paul's authority and they were calling his ministry and therefore his message into question. Corinth is on the cusp of rejecting the gospel due to this infighting that has taken place in the congregation. And so Paul, Paul has to address this. Not just to kind of address the, the mind, as it were. Not just, hey, let's, let's reorder the facts here. He's not just looking for a moral assent that he has uh, the right, that he has the moral high ground, that he is actually right in this debate. It's not simply, I'm right, now let me crush you under my thumb. It's, look, we've done nothing to harm you. Now please love us as you once used to. Let this relationship be restored. terrible thing that Paul is going through. And we see it happen so often in churches where at some point there comes to be some distrust between the congregation and its leadership. It's the very thing that we need to consider in, in our own lives, even in the life of this congregation. I think it, we do well to pause for a few minutes and try to let God's Word here in this passage shine on our own particular situation and in a godly way. You see, in many ways, we're not like Corinth. We have a very different set of circumstances than Corinth did. In some ways, we might be similar. But I think there's a good diagnostic question, a good question for self-reflection that each of us need to be asking ourselves. What's, what's your attitude towards the, the leadership? What's your disposition? What's your estimation of the church leadership here? And then, maybe a follow-up question, what is shaping your opinion? Is there, is there anything that's caused you to close yourself off to the ministry of the church here? Let me say right away, my goal is not here to, to pick on anybody in particular. This is not a matter of personality conflict. The, the danger that we see, and this is the danger that Paul has to address with the Corinth, that is this, this sets you on, on a very subtle road where if you're not too careful, you can end up rejecting the gospel itself altogether. So we have to ask, what are our options? If, if, if you do find your heart having maybe shut itself off, what are the options? Well, we are in the midst of a pastoral transition, and pastoral transitions are difficult. Sometimes uh, it's just hard to adjust to a new pastor. I get it. I'm not the same pastor as your previous pastor, and that's okay. It's not saying that one is better or one is worse. It's just different. And there needs to be a period of adjustment. And, you know, sometimes, you know, you look at a new pastor as, as you know, a pastor I had growing up says, like, like a dog looks at a new dog bowl. You, you look at it with a certain amount of suspicion because you're used to having a pastor for 12 or 13 years. And now here comes this new pastor and he has, he has new things that he's implementing, new things that he's doing. And, and that's okay. That's a process that every congregation works. That's not necessarily bad. It's just a fact of life. 
Pastoral transitions are always hard, and, and hopefully there'll be grace on both sides. And, and so we want to make sure that in that process, you don't end up shutting yourself off. But we also need to make sure it's nothing more than that. You know, there's, there's the, uh, just the, the, the uh, yeah, we want to make sure there's nothing more than that. I'll just leave it there. We need to, again, have a legitimate scriptural diagnostic here. And so we have to ask ourselves, if, if you do feel like you're shut off to the, to the preaching minister, we have to ask, is the problem me? That's a legitimate question to ask. Um, it's, it's something any leader should be asking as a self-diagnostic is, is, the, is the fault here. Am I like those false teachers in 2 Corinthians, one coming up here to boast about myself or my own accomplishments? Am I preaching a false gospel that would cause you to boast in anything but the cross of Christ? One of the reasons I'm grateful for being Presbyterian is there is a way to hold me accountable for that. It's called the presbytery. Right? We're, not an, we're not an island in the middle of an ocean where I get to do whatever I want and I'm accountable to nobody. Just like you, I'm accountable to Scripture, and that is not an empty phrase. I am actually held accountable to uh, 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 my membership. Let me just put it like this. My membership is not here at Westminster Presbyterian Church. My membership resides in the Presbytery of the Northwest. And so if I'm preaching a false gospel, you can bring me up on charges, and I have to give an account for every other minister here in the state of Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and Northwest Canada regarding the things that come out of my mouth from this pulpit. So that should give you confidence. I hope it never has to come to that, by the way. Please come to me. Sometimes it's just a matter of me forgetting to say the word not. You know, I, I accidentally say the exact opposite thing of what I mean. I, you know, I'm happy to repent. Uh, uh, please, uh, if I'm wrong, uh, come to me. We'll talk about it. It's okay. I mess up a lot. You know, um, I need to get the t-shirt, you know, based off that John Piper book, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. Because I feel like it's everything I do is, you know, sticking my foot in my mouth in so many ways. But if that is not the reason why our hearts are being closed off to church leadership, we have to have another diagnostic, diagnostic question. And this is the very thing that Paul is having to address in Corinth. Has your love for the leadership grown cold because of the whispers and accusations of others? It's the very thing that Paul is dealing with here. And he addresses it head on. And Paul is saying, I've done nothing wrong. See, it's a danger to let your love grow cold towards the leadership, not because we're out here to win a personality contest. See, the danger comes when we allow external criteria coupled with the gossip and slander to shape our expectations for church leadership and church gospel ministry. Because, it's so, because it becomes so easy for one to, to turn themselves off to the gospel. It's just kind of the, the next hop, skip, and jump over. Think of how many people ever grew, grew up in church and, and something uh, offended them in, in the wrong way. And they said, that's it. I'm never stepping foot in church again. Because of the offense of, of a particular individual that was not properly dealt with, they just walked away. But what if the offense is not the minister, but somebody casting a shadow on the integrity of the minister, the elders who have done no wrong. This is what Paul's dealing with. 
It's a perennial problem we face, and it goes much deeper than the question of what's your attitude towards me or to, uh, to the elders or the deacons of this church or uh, to any number of people who serve in this church. That is well and true, but it goes much deeper than that because we begin making our way towards what's our estimation of Christ Himself. That's the perennial problem that each and every one of us faces, isn't it? Scripture's repeated warnings, do not let your love grow cold. Part of Paul's issue with Corinth is that their love has grown cold to him and to his message, and therefore it is now beginning to seep and make its way into a cold-heartedness, a hard-heartedness towards God himself. Paul says we can't, we can't have that happen. And so we have to ask ourselves, are, are there things that are happening that are, that are shutting me off, not just, or not simply to you know, the pastor, but is there anything that's shutting me off to my Savior? Don't let your love grow cold. There are a number of factors for Corinthus because of the lies that were being spread about Paul. But for the church of Hebrews, they're growing cold because of increased persecution. People are just tired of dealing uh, with the imposition from society, making fun of them. For the church of Ephesus, their love grew cold just because they treat a church as something that you go through the motions with. They weren't doing anything wrong. They, just heart, their heart wasn't in it anymore. And for the church of Laodicea, their love grew cold because they thought that they didn't need anything from God. They thought that they had it all, that they were living high on the hog. And the Lord says, don't you know that you're poor, miserable, wretched, and blind? We don't know our need for salvation. We forget our need for daily forgiveness of sin. That's what Christ told us every day. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our sins. On a daily basis, because even as believers, we sin every day. And it's so easy for those sins to accumulate and build up and to crust over our hearts that our love for the Lord gets snuffed out before we even recognize. It's like a man going fishing right off the coast. He decides to take a nap without anchoring down. And then he wakes up, and what has happened? His, 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 little, his little fishing boat has drifted off to sea, and he wakes up, and he doesn't know, he doesn't see land inside anywhere, and he doesn't even know which direction he should be uh, rowing the boat towards. That's exactly what Hebrews says happens with apathy. When our love grows cold, it's so imperceptible. It's the problem of self-deception. It deceives, and it deceives yourself and you don't recognize it. And so there is a call to rouse yourself up from your slumber to make sure that this is not happening to you. And so how do we do that? And that's why we confessed our faith together this morning with the Shorter Catechism. God has given us means of grace for us to continually be washed and refreshed and renewed in the joy of the Lord that we might continue uh, to have our love grow more fervently towards our Savior and the great gospel that He's given to us. And those means of grace are that of the Word, which is to be attended to with diligent preparation, not just the reading of it, but the preaching of the Word. There's a special blessing the Lord grants to the preaching of His Word. And that's why we're called to attend to it with diligence, that uh, even the evening before, even to plan out your Saturday night in a way that you come to church rested, with a disposition where you're not thinking about the events of uh, you know, uh, the parties you've had over the weekend, 
or the work week that lies ahead, but that this day of rest gives you a foretaste of the age to come. That in the sacraments, you get to taste and see once again of the goodness of our Savior. And that in prayer, you say, Lord, I want to believe. Help my unbelief. This is what Paul's getting at here. Open your hearts to us. It's not our fault. But you've become restricted in your affections. It's time for that self-diagnostic. And so we have to ask ourselves, and I, I don't know everybody's individual situation here, but it's a question each of us have to ask ourselves. Has our love for our Savior grown cold? And if so, what's the reason why? And how do we get back on the right path? Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, and we ask that you, through the work of your Spirit, would cause our hearts to, to grow wide. Open our hearts that you might fill it with the love of Christ that has been shed through the giving of your Spirit. Cause us to taste and see that you are good, even as we come here to the table, and as we are reminded of the forgiveness of sins that is found in the death and resurrection of Christ, who gave himself for us that we might live for him. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.